0: Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Father Matt Malone, who for the past 10 years has served as America's editor-in-chief. And also, I just want to let you know he's the reason I'm here with America. He reached out to me, and we had a discussion about his vision and my vision, and voila, the Gloria Purvis podcast was born. One other reason that I want to talk with Matt is to get his insights on what America has become after its founding in 1909. What were the challenges for him as a leader of America? What are the kind of cultural practices they have in America? Some, I think, are very interesting for... The listener, I know it was a change for me, something that was new for me to experience. And also for you to hear about what he thinks of the new editor-in-chief, who has been on this podcast, by the way, and that's Father Sam Sawyer. The other reason I wanted to bring Father Matt on is because of this huge, exclusive interview that America had with Pope Francis. And I actually got to travel to Rome to be a part of that experience, which is such a blessing and so life-changing, really. And I must say, seeing the Holy Father and have him... Look me in my face and the way in which his eyes lit up and the smile that he had, this just genuine happiness at meeting me it was like a nobody really did something to me. It says a lot about who our Holy Father is. And Father Matt also helps us, I think, understand how he thinks about things because he's a fellow Jesuit and he'll help us understand what it means to think like a Jesuit, which our Holy Father certainly does. And I don't think you can get that information anywhere else, except for right here on the Gloria Purvis podcast, that keen analysis on how the Holy Father thinks. And also just to let you know, when I first saw the Holy Father, when he came in, he was using a walker, my heart melted because I thought, oh, this is a loving grandfather, a loving father. And he wasn't like tottering or anything like that. He was very strong and robust. And I also thought this is something the American public needs to see because we don't often think of leaders who are elderly and who use walkers as still being capable of leading. And the Holy Father certainly does. And he's certainly capable of loving because that's what I felt the entire time that I was in his presence, that I was loved, and I felt his tenderness. And I hope you go and read the interview at americamagazine.org because I'm hoping that love and tenderness comes through to you as well. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media where real honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast. And that's okay. That's healthy, really. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So... If this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by clicking the follow button on your favorite podcast listening app and by getting a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Father Matt Malone is up next. Father Matt Malone, welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast. I'm so excited to speak to you.
1: Oh, me too. I'm, I'm really pleased to be here.
0: <laughs> you know, you're really the reason this show exists. So <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I still remember talking to you that time, and I'm just so happy that we said yes to each other. So this was great.
1: Yeah, amen to that.
0: So maybe our listeners have been following the headlines and know that we have a big conversation that we're going to discuss, and that is... This exclusive interview that America had with Pope Francis, and I had the privilege and blessing of being there with you. And I'm just, oh, I just keep thinking about it, meditating on this. And when you realized that the interview was going to happen, what did you think? What were you thinking?
1: I really thought, "Holy cow!" <laughs> I mean, <laughs> same thing, <same>. right? <laughs> I mean, in one sense, I felt it was really special because, you know, my tenure here at America began with an interview with Pope Francis, Mm -hmm. but it was not exclusive to America. It was an interview that he gave to all of the Jesuit journals in the world. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And now it's ending with an interview with Pope Francis, but it is an exclusive to America. And it's, in fact, the first interview that he's given to an American outlet, which is, I thought, well, that's a big deal. So. Immediately, my mind started going to, okay, how are we going to do this, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, who do we need in the room and how do we make sure we ask the right questions and the right follow-ups and how does it work in terms of protocol and all the rest? Because, you know, this is a very, we were talking, you know, before the break about America, we were founded in 1909, Mm -hmm. right? It's 113 years and we have never conveyed the direct words of a Pope, right? Mm -hmm. Exclusively to our audience and mm-hmm. I thought this is important we got to get this right right yes. so there was a lot of conversation and I remember calling you and saying yes. Gloria I want you to go with us and holy cow I thought you sounded like you had just won the lottery
2: <laughs> I, I had I was, I was like what?
1: are you kidding me?" <laughs>
0: yes I was not so refined let's just say with a little and hollering <laughs> <laughs> <That's right. laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. So, yeah,
0: I mean, woo. And I remember actually walking with you as we were going through St. Peter's and getting ready to go back there. Like, oh my gosh, this is really, really happening. Yeah. And I have to say, your opening question, when you asked him, how is it you're joyful, pretty much? Why are you joyful? And his response, I was like, my gosh, that's a perfect question. Perfect mm-hmm. opener. What made you think to ask that anyway? Because that's like also a deeply personal question, too, also to yeah, the Holy Father.
1: You're right. Well, it's the sort of thing that people are interested in, you know, that they want to know. But also, I think whenever, I mean, for the last almost 10 years that he's been Pope, one of the most common questions that I'm asked is what is he like in person? Where does this strength and this seeming happiness that he has and freedom, Yeah. Where do these things come from? And I find that very interesting because they don't ask me about Ukraine or women's ordination or, you know, what he thinks about liberation theology or anything like that. They ask me about him Mm -hmm. as a believer and as a person, right? Which, of course, is the part about him that I'm least equipped to talk about (laughs) (laughs) because I I just met him, you know, (laughs) in the course of this job. Right. So... That's what I'm asked about and a big part of the reason why I'm asked that whether people know it or not is because they want that yeah I'll have what he's having yeah right indeed so where does that come from he always seems like he's a joyful person he always yeah. seems like he's free he feels like he's strong he feels like he's and so they want to know where does that come from and then of course he he gave us what I think was a great answer he yeah. said it's not where it's who yes does it come from yes. And he said, it's my relationship with God.
0: And he feels like God is always with him. Right. That was so beautiful. And I'm like, you know, you went through the same formation as he did to become a Jesuit. So was that any of that surprising to you?
1: No, I mean, not really, because that answer is typical, I think, of someone, whether you're a Jesuit or not, who lives the spiritual exercises of Mm. St. Ignatius of Loyola, because that experience is meant to bring about precisely that kind of freedom mm-hmm. and this sort of persistent faith that no matter what happens, no matter what happens, it has within it the power of calling forth from me a deeper response to God and to other people and that is very typical of a man of the exercises as he is and when he says I'm not happy because I have good health and I'm not happy because whatever he said right it doesn't have to do with any material causes it's because of my relationship with the Lord. Yes. And that is exactly from the principle and foundation of the spiritual exercises. Man is created to praise, reverence, and serve God, and by this means, save his soul. And therefore, he is to be indifferent to riches and to wealth and to health and to all of those things. Mm-hmm. And he gave the answer right off. Right out. you could see. Like it, an yeah. old novice master that he is. <laughs> <laughs> But
0: I also, you know, heard within that, you know, all these things of the world, you know, being indifferent to it, if you will. He's not indifferent to the human person.
1: No, right. And right. one of the
0: things is he likes being with people, and so I keep hearing in that, and maybe I'm just reading into it and seeing a similarity between you and Sam and the Holy Father, this interest in the human person, this interest in people. And I'm like, is that what how you all are able to be shepherds? You know, from this relationship with the Lord that you're drawn to his children, which are really your children, since you're priests of God? Is that what draws you? Makes you so approachable, so normal? Because that was something I noticed in Holy Father. Yeah, as important as he is, I just felt so immediately right at home and comfortable. Yeah. So I'm like, what is it that you sons of Ignatius, <laughs> you know, what is it that you have that allows you to do that?
1: It's that, in a word, it's freedom. So through our experience of the spiritual exercises, each of us has a unique relationship. With the Lord, but while it's unique, it's also that which unites us to one another, mm-hmm. and that's why the Jesuits, among themselves, can appear to be quite diverse in their outlook and in their ministries and and in all the rest, because. You know that there's that old joke that says if you've met one Jesuit, you've met one Jesuit, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Right, right. And because you know we're all over the place. Sometimes we're <laughs> activists. Sometimes we work for the Bank of Spain. Sometimes we're artists. Sometimes we're actors. Sometimes we're philosophy professors. Sometimes we're journalists. Right. And y'all have different ideas about everything. And but what holds us together is that common experience of the Spiritual Exercises, our encounter with the God who is Jesus Christ in a deeply intimate, profoundly existential way. Amen. And that is what gives us the freedom to say, you know, okay, I could do this. I could take risks. I can be there. I can, I can go out into the world and face it and encounter it, you know, because mm-hmm. no matter where it is or what it is or who it is, because I'm grounded grounded in my relationship with God.
0: Amen. You know, we had some prepared questions before we met with the Holy Father. And by the way, listeners, please go to americamagazine.org where you can read the full transcript of the interview. And I think it's important that you do so and you yourself take in, you know, the conversation that we have with the Holy Father. But I'm curious, Matt, if there was... Anything that surprised you in the meeting, whether it's the location, how the Holy Father looked, maybe some of his answers? Were there any things that surprised you most from the conversation or from being with the Holy Father?
1: Well, I wasn't surprised by this. I mean, he did. Yeah, he came in. There was no entourage. So there was not even a priest secretary. I know. As you know, yeah. it was just yeah. him and his walker. Yeah, And uh, <laughs> it was hard to see. I mean, he was clearly uncomfortable because, you know, he has pain in his knee, but mm-hmm. I sort of expected all of that having met him before and heard stories about people meeting him and and, and his informality, right? Mm-hmm. Though I didn't call him Jorge. Right. <laughs> no you did not. <laughs> <laughs> and th- something that so that all seemed very familiar to me, but something that really struck me in a way it has not struck me before is related to what we were just talking about. I was sitting there thinking, "Oh yeah, this guy is he really is a Jesuit. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know why I, this suddenly dawned on me, but I, I was listening to him in some of these answers, and I'm thinking to myself, he thinks like a Jesuit. He thinks mm-hmm. like one. and And it permeates his whole pattern of thinking, so much so that he probably couldn't, he couldn't not think this way.
0: What does that mean, he, he thinks like a Jesuit? Because I'm sure there are a number of people listening going, what is...
1: What does that mean? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, I sometimes uh, have trouble <laughs> articulating. <it. laughs> what I mean is that by virtue of our training, both spiritually through the spiritual exercises, but also our academic training, and particularly our grounding in philosophy, which is really a method of asking questions, mm. we, Jesuits, tend to avoid, like the plague, extremes, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So, if somebody says, look, you have two ways to think about this, A and B, the Jesuit's always looking for C. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right? Yeah. And that's given us, I think unfairly a reputation for obfuscation or, Mm. you know, being too clever. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. what we're really looking for is this, we know by virtue of our own experience and the experience of the human world that it's always more complicated. Mm. It's always more complicated than it looks. Mm -hmm. And so a Jesuit is always looking for, okay, what's the question that's not being asked right now? Okay. What is the category we're not considering right now, right? Mm-hmm. Is there a C after A and B? And if so, what might that be? And the Jesuit is always keen to avoid closing off that questioning prematurely, ah, right? Okay. Of coming to an answer too quickly. Okay. And that's how he thinks. That's how he thinks. And you could see it in real time. Right? Yes. So it's here's a very good example. Carrie Weber, who was also with us for this interview, she asked him a question about the bishops' conference.
2: Yeah.
1: Right? In the United States. So the way that Pope Francis flipped that question on its head and said, no, that's actually the wrong question that you're asking, is he said, look, Jesus didn't invent the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, it's a bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. That was invented by the bishops to help them do their jobs collectively. Mm-hmm. But the Pope said, no, what Jesus gave us were bishops, yeah. right, in the apostles, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And because we as Catholics believe that the bishops are the successors to the apostles, right? Yeah. And he said, no, what is key here is not anyone's understanding of the bishop's conference or any individual's relationship to the bishop's conference, because that's just a building in Washington, as right. far as he's concerned, <laughs> <Friends>. <laughs> right? Right. It's what is the relationship between the bishop and the people he serves? That's, you should be looking to your own bishop. And, you know, whether you're happy with him or you're questioning or whatever it is, that's where you should be focusing. And what I love about that is that it's really consistent with his entire approach to these pastoral questions. So he he always reminds us, see the person, see the person. You're not talking about a public policy. You're talking about people, right? There's no such thing. As migrants. There's just Mm -hmm. that migrant right in front of you. (laughs) Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like keep your mind and your eye on the person. And so he does it here in an ecclesiological sense. He says, keep your eye on that bishop. There was no such thing as the bishops. There's only your bishop. Yes. I liked that because I tend to think when we start talking about the bishops, which really don't exist. Right. Because they are a rather diverse lot. True. We can lose sight of that diversity but also it makes it much more easy for us to scapegoat them
0: it does doesn't it yeah
1: it really we don't, does when we talk about them only as a group
0: and also i think it further believe it or not one of the things i was thinking about is was like it further removes me from who my individual shepherd is yeah and so instead of going to try to talk with my shepherd or seek clarity from things with my shepherd i'm just like all oh, the bishops just like what right. you said. And I also thought it was kind of Protestant, to be honest with you. Yeah. I actually yeah. thought that was also kind of Protestant, this whole um emphasis on Bishop's Conference instead of, you know, the individual bishop. Something I think that we we lose there. And also without even the Holy Father knowing it, I think it forecloses that whole angle that people were coming out with, like, oh, they the Bishop's Conference elected this person to be the head of the bishop's conference and you know, this person is perceived as anti-Francis, blah, 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 blah. And without even probably even being aware of it, I think Pope Francis's answer sort of forecloses that whole line of discussion because that's like, it's irrelevant. What's right. relevant is who the bishop is and his relationship to his people. Right. And I will say sitting in there with you and Carrie and Sam and Jerry and seeing the Holy Father and listening to the Holy Father, I have to say that I felt... Gosh, if anyone is reading secular press only about the Holy Father, you're not getting who he is. Yeah. You're totally yeah. not getting who he is. This man yeah. is Peter. And I think that was one of the things that you said, you know, you felt when you were in there I'm um, speaking with him. And I also felt like gosh, he sees things not in the way in which Americans perhaps frame things in the press. So, one of the things that struck me I think it was when we were talking about China, when he says, I'm not a conqueror. Right. I'm not a conqueror. And it then made me think about how so many of the critiques or questions in the Second Media portray him more as this man of great power in the world and how he's going to wield that power. And what I heard there is someone that wants to be docile to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Someone that wants to serve, someone that loves his children loves the sheep that have been given to him. And yep. that's completely you know, different. He's not interested in dominating. He's not interested in conquering. He's interested in accompanying all the sheep, wherever they are, being with them. And that's a harder, I think a harder thing for a bishop rather than say, yeah, vote this way. And you're good. You're in like Flynn. You're all good. The harder path is to accompany the person. And that's one of the things I think that has Remained with me and struck me from that conversation with the Holy Father.
1: Yeah, no, me too, me too, definitely.
0: We'll be right back. So you know, I'm just curious. I mean, I almost feel like wherever you go, you just need to have your theme music playing, and you can drop the mic and said, "So yeah, I did that with the Holy Father." Okay, (laughs) right? right, right, right. But one of the things I, you know. Love to find out about people is how they discern their vocation. And so I'm curious to know how you discern the priesthood and the Jesuits in particular.
1: Well, I'm not one of those people who thought that I wanted to be a priest my whole life. It really didn't come to me until later in my 20s after college. And I moved into an apartment that was next to a parish in Boston, Massachusetts, that was staffed by Jesuits. And I just started going to Mass there. I had never met a Jesuit because Mm -hmm. I had been to public school my entire life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I started going there for Mass, and I got to know these Jesuits, and uh, I started hanging out with them. They started taking me on retreat. They started teaching me how to pray. Mm. And I gradually, in the course of conversations with them, I thought to myself, geez, I, I think I want what they have, which was a certain a certain freedom, a certain devotion, a certain fraternity. So I never really thought about the priesthood in the abstract. It was always for me about whether to be a Jesuit or not. Mm. And it really happened there in personal conversation. And I would say that that sort of road that I just described converged with you know the events of 9-11. And I think like a lot of people in the United States, perhaps even around the world, I began to think about... Okay, what am I really doing with my life, and mm. what am I called to do, and, and how might I be able to serve?
0: Yeah, 9-11 was one of those sobering moments. Yeah, You know, I don't think there was an empty parish <laughs> for weeks after that. You know, people seeking, trying to make sense, and for you, that helped coalesce into a yes to the yes. Jesuits. Yes, that's right. And the thing is, too, for me, as I found out more about the Jesuit formation, it's not like a quick thing. <laughs>
1: no, God, no. <laughs> and um,
0: I think the opportunity to see more about what the Jesuits are and also how they can help form and develop your already natural talents, um, there's a lot of opportunity for that, I think, in the kind of formation that the Jesuits undergo.
1: Yeah, I think that's right.
0: And so I was thinking, so somewhere in there... It had to be someone said, This guy would be great to be America's next editor in chief.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Somewhere in there. How how was that? I mean
1: Well, it's interesting because, you know, I mean, as you said, that formation is a long time. So I was a Jesuit ten years before I was ordained a priest. Yeah. Because, you know, we have to go through the two year novitiate and then studies in philosophy and theology and all of that. I had worked at America previously. When I was between my philosophy and theology studies, I worked here for two years as an associate editor, writing about politics and foreign affairs. And of course, my experience had been, you know, up until I was thirty, in politics. Right. And I was a writer. I worked as a speechwriter, and I worked on campaigns. And I had also worked at a think tank that published a magazine. So it, all of this was familiar to me. But see, this is the interesting thing, Gloria. When they called me. In the middle of my theology studies, I was in London, I was studying in London, and the president of the Jesuit Conference said, well, we're thinking about making a, a change in America, or we're thinking about the next change in America, and all signs seemed to point to you, and I wanted to know whether you were interested. And initially, I was not, mm. because I just worked for an organization that ran a magazine And I think I was going to be the executive director of it when I was 31. But then I left and became a Jesuit. Then I spent 10 years in formation. And now you want me to run an organization that has a magazine? (laughs) Right? (laughs) And so I was like, uh, let me think about that. (laughs) Let me pray about that. Right? Mm -hmm. But then slowly it came to me, that no, I'm not being asked to do this as some previous incarnation of myself, but right. I'm doing. I'm being asked to do this in in light of all that I have been training to do. Right. I'm being asked to do this as a Jesuit, as a priest. Yes, and then that really, you know, segued very nicely with how I was beginning to think about America as a ministry, ah. because I remember Avery Dallas telling us that every ministry participates in the one ministry of Jesus Christ, which is a ministry of reconciliation. And I thought, so, okay, well, if I were to think of America as a ministry, not like something I did before, but as something different
2: Mm -hmm.
1: in light of my ordination and my life as a Jesuit, and it was a ministry, then what would that look like? Mm -hmm. What would it look like to be a media ministry specifically? And that sort of set things in motion.
0: And thank you for thinking of it that way. You know, as you mentioned that the first time you met Jesuits, you know, was at that parish next to where you lived. I was thinking, my when was the first time I met Jesuits? And, you know, as soon as you said Avery Dulles, I was like, that's right. It was Cardinal Avery Dulles was the first Jesuit I ever met. Oh, is
1: that right? Oh my <laughs> yeah, gosh. Yeah. I've
0: never, ever met any Jesuits. And I had the opportunity to hear him speak at Georgetown. It was a very small, intimate event. And, um, my husband was like totally like doing backflips when he found out we were going because go he was so excited and uh, you know, just much respect for the Jesuits and a big fan of Matteo Ricci. Yeah. So, you know, I'm from the South. We didn't have a lot of Jesuits. So I don't remember any Jesuits ever in South Carolina and being a convert and the only person in my family. I did not have any grounding about how You know, don't let your head blow up how magnificent the Jesuits could be.
2: Mm. And so, (laughs) uh,
0: so I went in there completely, you know, and I was just bowled over by Avery Dulles. And I was like, what kind of formation are they putting these guys in that they can have this kind of this kind of depth? And then yes. I met you. Uh, of course, the Holy Father I knew was a Jesuit, but I didn't ever know him as a Jesuit. I just was like, oh, it's the Pope. And then I met you, and then I met Sam, and then so many other Jesuits. And I was like, okay, I get it now. I mm-hmm. get it now. And I'm thankful that you said yes, because look at all the good that has come through America as a result and all the souls that you do touch. You know, in that one ministry, right? And I'm sure you probably weren't necessarily thinking all of that, but probably just being faithful and saying, Yes, I'm gonna do it. But to me, it's a lesson in when you say yes and give yourself over to the Lord, the wonderful things He will do on account of that yes, if you're willing, you know. And so thank you for that, for that testimony.
1: And that's so important, I think, what you just said for particularly if you are in leadership you know, like I have been here for the last decade, because mm-hmm. your principal experience of leading, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, should be that of being led, yes. right? Mm-hmm. By the Spirit, by the Lord himself, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just a matter of saying yes, it's being clear in your own heart and mind, who am I saying yes to? To whom am I saying yes? Right? Because without that relationship, I think you can lose sight of just, who you're serving.
0: And I imagine that praying the hours helps you (laughs) maintain that relationship. I know St. Teresa of Avila, who I love, I love her, you know, talks about prayer being the gateway, you know, to a relationship with the Lord. And I know that it has to be tough to be a leader, but I imagine that prayer keeps you close to who it is that you're serving.
1: Yeah, it does. And look, I have to be honest, for a decade, I've it's been a perpetual struggle to get in the entire <laughs> <Amen>. <laughs> liturgy of the hours yes, every day. Yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> but what I love about it, and I do pretty well, wake up with it. What I love mm-hmm. about it is I'm praying with the church. Yeah. Some people are like, "Oh, that's not really a form of prayer that I groove to. That you know <laughs> right. makes sense yeah. to me or whatnot." But. Yeah. I mean, I certainly wasn't familiar with it until I became a Jesuit. But what I love about it is you wake up and you're praying with the church. You're literally all on the same page.
0: Yes, yes. Right? Everywhere yeah. in
1: the world. <laughs> yeah. And I love that. I, Me I love too. that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I struggle morning and evening prayer, sometimes night prayer. So I couldn't imagine doing midday and all that <laughs> stuff. So God bless you. God bless you for all that. But... So you've been at America for a good little bit. How do you think that the over the years, um, the role of editor-in-chief and the ministry has evolved? Actually, let's yeah. think about even since America's founding in 1909 to now. Mm.
1: Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is, okay, so I would say from 1909 to 1959, America's mm-hmm. first 50 years. You basically have one kind of America magazine, which is very traditional news analysis opinion from a Catholic perspective, published once a week, and that was it, right? And uh, an influential voice in the public discourse. Down along comes a man named Thurston Davis. He was a Jesuit. He comes along in about 1957, and he decides, you know, we're now competing with radio. We're competing with television. we got lots of happening here. <laughs> and yeah. And we need to take this America charism, right? Or what they call in a business school a brand. And <laughs> we have to we have to expand it, right, across more platforms. So he came up with the Catholic Book Club and he came up with the America Record Club and he came up with the America Associates program for lay people to be, you know, helping to support our mission. And so for the last fifty years, we really had Thurston's magazine, right?
2: Mm-hmm. The
1: one that Father Thurston gave us. And then when I came We had to sort of go through that process again. Okay, who are we for the 21st century, right? So basically, I guess the moral of this tale is America kind of reinvents itself every 50 years. (laughs) But the way it has changed most dramatically, I mean, people see podcasts like yours, which never existed before, Mm -hmm. and video programming and, you know, this awesome print magazine and so forth. And the run of full range of events, and we have, and our pilgrimage program, all the stuff that never existed before, and they think, "Wow, America's really changed a lot." But the way that it has changed most dramatically is internally, mm. because the one thing that was true from 1909 until 2012 was that America had two levels: there was the editor in chief, mm-hmm. and then there was everybody else. <laughs> And oh, wow. the editor-in-chief made every decision. It was very much structured like a Jesuit community, uh-huh. right? Everything has to go through the superior, the superior decides, And then, and of course, if we were going to publish like we do now four or five times a day yeah, that's... and have all of these different platforms, that had to change. So I always say I still have the same amount of authority that I had on day one, but I have much less power. Ah. Because it's been delegated.
0: Delegated, yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And
1: we have a marvelous, marvelous team, particularly our team leads. People like Tim Reedy, our deputy editor-in-chief, who do such a amazing job day-to-day, you know, just getting yes. our content together and getting it out and ha- making sure it has an impact. So, I mean, frankly, most of the time now, I see what we publish when the public does
0: I right, mean, because you've if it
1: was something that was might be controversial, I saw it before. But yeah. for the most part, yeah. And that's the way it should be.
0: Yeah, I would say. I mean, I, I think about how modern corporations have to, you have to delegate, right, yeah. and get good people, which you've done, you have done. And then the other thing that I was thinking about as you're talking about from 1909 to now, well... I mean, it's also how the readership has changed, how people get information has changed over time. And I was thinking of St. John Paul II and the New Evangelization, which, you know, you need to be where the people are. And to me, it seems that's what America has done.
1: Yeah, and that's a classic Ignatian insight, isn't it? Oh, really? You know, (laughs) yeah, you meet people where they are, Ah. right? In other words, if you're a minister, don't expect them to come to you. You go to them. Right. You go to them. And you uh, you enter through the door, they open. Amen.
0: Right. There's a lot there, okay, in that, a lot there. And I, I'm going to come back to that insight later in our conversation. I was thinking about your coming to America, and I'm wondering, what were some of the early challenges you identified? Okay, you saw that the way decisions were made had to change if you all were going to expand in all these different areas. Were there any other challenges that you thought, okay? this is something you know we we have to we have to figure out
1: <laughs> yeah i mean i think in the shift that i just described to you going from like a two-tiered organization to a multi-tiered organization and delegating authority and power to other people for decision making required a change in our culture mm-hmm. and that the work of culture building is Ooh. oh man yes. that is so crucial in an organization mm-hmm. so it was a lot of building up trust you know we brought in people And, you know, we staffed up. But thank God, for the most part, we hired the right people. And slowly we built up that trust because I have to trust that they're not going to get too far out ahead of me without talking to me about something they should talk to me about. And they have to trust that I have their back when they make a decision, right? And that – so changing that culture, that was a huge challenge. But thankfully we had just really – generous people who wanted to do it and didn't fight it.
0: Can I just add one thing that I noticed? I've worked Mm -hmm. in a lot of other ministries areas (laughs) where there are presence of religious. This is the first environment I've worked in professionally where the religious are called by their first name. And I think that to me has a different impact. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if that was intentional so I imagine like if I were to see you at a parish and we're right. together at a parish, I'd call you father. Mm-hmm. But in the milieu of working in America and making decisions and things like that, I call you Matt.
1: Yeah. And so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
0: this is the first professional environment I've been in where calling priests and religious by their first name, that's pretty new. But I also see a difference, I would say, in equalizing, I guess. And I'm wondering, what was behind that?
1: Well, it really wasn't my decision. I mean, when I worked here previously at America, that was the custom. Uh But it probably does reflect the emphasis that Jesuits put on really meeting people where they are, right? Let's not erect barriers between us that we don't need. And in, yeah. really, in order to do what we need to do every day, we really have to, we have to forge our relationship. Yeah. And in order to do that, let's not throw up any obstacles that aren't necessary, <laughs> right? Yeah, but yeah. I would say yeah. one of the things that also impresses me about America is most of the Jesuits who work here report to a layperson. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that has never been a problem for anybody. And I, I, I admire that.
0: I admire it. And I have to say, as it was hard for me in the beginning, not to say father this, father that, father this, father that. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> this is not the custom here. <laughs> so even, you know, myself as a lay person, that was a bit of a, I had to work on it. And I'm trying to think what that did for me. It, it definitely made me, <laughs> it definitely made me think, okay, they do want my opinion. You know, I do right. have something to bring to this conversation that they think will be enriching and valuable. And that it's not that father has all the answers and, you know, there's nothing for me to add. Right. And so that was a bit of a, that was a bit of a change, you know, a bit of a change, yeah. a wonderful change.
1: Well, you know, what's interesting is to me anyway, is I'm actually loath to call people by their first name when I've just met them. <laughs> Right. Yeah, <laughs> so same. I really I'm always I'm always saying, you know, hello, Mrs. Purvis, or yes. hello, sir, hello, ma'am. <laughs> you yeah, know, same. like because I, I feel like I should be invited to address them by their first name. And I'll tell you why I think mm-hmm. that. Because the way that this is developed culturally in our country, the only people now who are addressed by their titles are people who have power. True. Right? Because nobody's gonna go up to the president and say, hey, Joe, <laughs> <Correct>. right? <laughs> you say Mr. President, right? But yes. you address people in a certain way, not because of the office they occupy, but because there's a certain respect owed every yes. human being. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just think, you know, Mrs. Murphy of Atomwa, Iowa it deserves the same respect as Joe Biden does. Right. So yes. if I'm going to call him Mr. President, I'm calling her Mrs. Murphy. Yes. Otherwise, she's Margaret and he's Joe.
2: <laughs> right,
0: correct. You know, and I'm a Southerner and it's just, uh, yeah. you, you just yeah. cannot not call people by their appropriate titles. So that was, I also recognize, though, that you all were trying to do something specific in this particular milieu. Not to suggest that you just go out in the street and they're calling everybody by their right. first name, you know what I mean? Right. But there was something specific here. One last thing I maybe that I will ask is, how this explosion in digital media has impacted what America is deciding to do in that frontier, if you will. I, I kind of see this as like the new frontier, this digital means of communicating. Because, you know, you have the print magazine,
1: but yeah. then
0: this whole digital piece, I mean, it seems like it's a 24-hour news cycle now yep. that you have a digital footprint.
1: hmm Yeah, that's right. I would say the digital revolution, which is often bemoaned, by people who work at traditional legacy print magazines and newspapers. I never got that. I never got that because to me this digital revolution has given America so many opportunities it never had before. Mm. I mean we are now through podcasting, through our video department, we're now into television, we're into radio. I mean <laughs> those are things we never could do. Yeah. We never could do, right? We can now tell a story from multiple perspectives. One of the things I know we're gonna talk about is this fabulous interview we had with Pope Francis. Yeah. And that was in print. We had video. We had some audio. We're talking about it on podcasts. We're talking about it on, you know, T V. Mm-hmm. So it's a to me, this is a great time to be a multi platform media organization. The corollary of that is I think the digital revolution has not been so great for our democracy. And that's something that I really Worried about, and I continue to worry about the principal difference. Well, I should say one difference between when I started and now is when I started, I was more worried about the church than I was about the country. Mm -hmm. And now the reverse is true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've wondered if it seems like anybody could get a microphone and put out content with the digital. Not necessarily with the aims toward truth or even uh, yeah. fact-checking anything.
1: Well, we just, we went into this technological frontier without ever really asking ourselves, is this country structurally equipped with this 18th century Madisonian political structure? Is it equipped to deal with this, right? Because mm-hmm. the assumptions that are sort of built into the constitutional order, they none of them involve us talking about politics and having it be a blood sport.
0: Blood sport. That's a great way of describing it. But how is America, you think, able to help, you know, keep us on the rails in the country?
1: Well, one of the things that I've tried to do at America is, certainly in our own editorial voice, we've regularly brought us back to what I would call first principles of, you know, American democracy, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. whether you were a Democrat or you were a Republican— You know, we were always calling out, I think, look, this is dangerous and here's why. Mm -hmm. Right. So we've been faithful, I think, in defending that order, but also raising questions. Mm -hmm. But even more importantly, I have been very keen on us having a real diversity of voices, right? And that just that means religious, it means priests, it means men, it means women, it means Mm -hmm. people of color. But it also means people who think differently than you do. Right? Mm-hmm. It means ideological yes. diversity, philosophical diversity. Yeah. And I think just by us having that diversity on our platforms, we're making a positive contribution because we're showing the world that that's still possible. And by the way, commercially viable.
2: Which All right. Is not,
1: <laughs> which is not <laughs> insignificant, right? Because True. we've adopted that diversity, opinion diversity. And we have grown commercially at the same time. Yeah. Which bucks the conventional wisdom that says, no, you, you need to double down on a particular viewpoint if you're going to build a mass audience.
0: Well, I also think it shows the real Catholicity of the church. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And what I also believe it does is it helps educate Americans, I think, on the Catholicity of the church. Because mm-hmm. a lot of, times I've come across things where people think that there's only one way, one look, one sound, one feel to being Catholic. And if you've traveled the world and experienced the church in the world, you know that's not true, right? Absolutely not
1: true. That's absolutely
0: not true. And I know that you have someone that's going to be coming in after you, Sam Sawyer, Mm is the incoming editor-in-chief, and I know you know each other very well. In your estimation, because I'm imagining you had to probably have some input on who would be coming after Mm -hmm. you, what do we have to look forward to in Sam's leadership, you think?
1: Well, you're going to have the benefit of his mind, yeah, which is one of the finest minds I've ever encountered. I mean, Mm -hmm. he is a really smart guy.
0: That says a lot coming from you. Okay, yeah. no, I. You, I, you're
1: a I smart guy exactly. Too. <laughs> I mean, I live with a lot of people. Who, I mean, the people I live with probably have two hundred honorary doctorates <laughs> among them, right? <laughs> so it's that's you're right. That says a lot when I it say does. that this guy he's a smart guy because he mm-hmm. really really is. So you you have the benefit of his mind and you'll have the benefit of his heart, which is really is a pastor's heart. He is a deeply compassionate man, and so I walk out of here, you know, on November thirtieth with not a doubt or a fear about the future of America.
0: Amen. Amen. And I can I just add also having met both of you, you guys are so normal. <laughs> you guys are like super uber normal, easy to talk to, funny, humorous, you know. And I love that. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And you guys are pretty big deals and you don't make people feel small, you yeah. know? And I think that's huge and You know, I'm just like, wow,
1: this is really good. That means a lot to me. Thank you.
0: You know what? Now I'm really seeing that Ignatius spirit. You know, you go where the people of God are, where they open the door. um, And you aren't like, hey, I'm some big, brainy Jesuit. Listen to me. (laughs) You're like, hey, you're Gloria. I'd like to get to know you. And it's just a genuine interest in the human person. I think that's what it is that I am noticing most about you and Sam. And I can't wait for people to meet him, too. Uh, me too. So what's next? What's next for you after this?
1: Well, I mean, I stepped down in 24 hours from when we're yeah. taping this, yeah. and I'm then going to go on sabbatical for about nine months. And the Jesuits are good about that. You know, you work yeah. hard, but then when it's time to take a break and recenter, they give you the time to do it. So I'm going to do that. And then after that, there is a stage of... Uh, the last stage of Jesuit formation, which comes around 15 or 20 years after you first become a Jesuit, that I'll be invited to enter in September. And that lasts for about nine months.
0: And that last stage of formation, you say?
1: So it's called tertianship. Tertian as in three, tertiary. Uh Because our novitiate is two years. And so after you've been a Jesuit for 15 or 20 years, you kind of go back to the novitiate Uh for one more year, a third year. And Mm -hmm. You do the spiritual exercises one more time. Every Jesuit does the full thirty day twice in his life, Mm -hmm. and you basically go back to basics Mm -hmm. and you know revisit who and why you know you made the decision you made and why you would recommit yourself.
0: Beautiful.
1: It's kind of like marriage renewal for religious. I was just thinking that actually, and I've
0: been to marriage renewal some time ago with my husband. I was just thinking that. You know, and you're kind of like, gosh, yeah, we did say yes to each other. (laughs) (laughs) What was it? How's it going? Mm -hmm. You know, what can we do future, you know, to remember that spark and to nurture those good things. Right. And uh, Mm -hmm. to be sensitive to each other and to hear anew. you know, what these, you know, you have so much more life experience and how does that shape you to be able to listen?
1: Yeah. You know, and so
0: I imagine if you are listening to the voice of God here. And where he's leading you. Gosh, that's so beautiful. I'm so glad you have that opportunity. And I pray that these next nine months for you are fruitful and also restful. Although somehow I doubt there's gonna be restful. (laughs) I can still pray for that.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Restful
0: in the Jesuit way, I guess. Maybe that's what I'll say to the rest of the world. May not look necessarily restful, but restful in the Jesuit way, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah. Well, it'll be it'll certainly be different. I mean, I haven't For 10 years, there hasn't been a morning where I didn't wake up, you know, worried about America. And it's going to be uh, an interesting experience to not wake up that way. Yeah. So that's going to create space for something else. I don't know, but I don't know what it is yet. (laughs) Right, right,
0: right. I hear you. I hear you. That's, you know what? I have to say, you know, in the short time that I've known you, I am very thankful for your leadership at America, for your service, really for your ministry really for your ministry. Thank you. And, and I'm sure everybody else in America is as well. And I'm sure the subscribers and listeners are too. So thank you so much for giving of yourself, for saying yes, for being that faithful son of Ignatius. I'm grateful to you. I'm really sincerely grateful to you for that. And I'll be praying for a very fruitful sabbatical.
1: Well, thank you very much, Gloria. And I'm very proud that your podcast is hosted by American media and it's been a great blessing to get to know you better. So thank you.
0: Oh, thank you. I'm glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member. And be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. And by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and is engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.